Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and following. And I'd like to read that, and then we'll pray together, and we'll study the Word of God together. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at His teaching because He taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning once again uh, with a desire to worship you, a desire to adore you a desire to show our love for you, with a desire to hear your word, to incorporate it into our lives so that we might live in a manner that is pleasing to you and that we might go about doing your business and your work. As always, Lord, we want to thank you for our Savior who took our place on the cruel tree of Calvary, who took our penalty in his sinless, innocent body so that we, by putting our faith in him, could have eternal life, abundant living now, life with you forever, so that we could pass from death to life, never needing to fear death again, that we could be part of your family. Father, open our minds to your truth, a difficult truth in our day, the reality of fallen angels that we call demons. Help us to hear your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. The key word that I want us to see, especially in verses 21 through 28, is the word authority. Authority. You will find this word in verse 22 when we read, the people were amazed at his teaching, that is Jesus' teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority. And then again in verse 27, the people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? 
He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. The key word in this section is the word authority. Authority is the Greek word exousia. Exousia. And it has the idea of freedom of action. Freedom of action. It originally had the idea of the liberty of doing as one pleases. Authority originally, the word exousia originally meant authority or a, a liberty of doing as one pleases. It then morphed into ability or strength. So authority, exousia, was ability or strength. And then uh, it was power of authority. Power of authority. That is the right to exercise power over someone else or over something the right to exercise power and that's how it's meant in our passage this morning as one writer called it it's the power of rule or of government the power of one whose will and commands must be obeyed by others that's how it is used in our passage this morning to speak of the power of jesus christ he has the power of government he is the one who's Will and commands must be obeyed by others. Jesus has authority. Now why is that important? Why does Mark introduce the concept here of authority? We actually saw it a little bit in last week's passage uh, when uh, he chose his first disciples, as we studied last week with Pastor Chris, uh, we, we saw his authority over human beings. Well, why is... Mark introducing the concept of authority. Well, remember that what Mark is doing in this passage is he is presenting, he is presenting the unique person of Jesus Christ and what it is that authenticates this unique person. Uh, we've already seen that Mark presents Jesus' credentials uh, through Old Testament prophecy fulfilled through him through the ministry of John the Baptist, through the approval of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, as God the Father says, this is my son at Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove uh, settles in that occasion. So we have the approval of God the Father, the approval of the Holy Spirit. We saw the victory over Satan two weeks ago in his temptation. In all of those things, we see the, uh, the unique person that Jesus is. And the question would be, why is that important? Why is it important for Mark to begin here and to spend so much time talking about the uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ? I want to get to that in just a moment. But I want to also uh, mention that we see the authority over Jesus as he gathers his disciples. Today, in our passage, we're going to see the authority over Jesus in the teaching of the word of the, the authority of Jesus in the teaching of the word of God. We're going to see the authority of Jesus over demons. And next week, we will see the authority of Jesus over sickness. Now, why is it important for Mark to continue to impress us with the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? Why is Mark starting his gospel by showing us 
this unique person? Well, I think uh, it, it's answered in a quote by a writer who was introducing the book of Mark. And the writer says this, Mark writes this gospel to tell the basic story about Jesus. Almost half of his book deals with the final week of Jesus' life, ending with his death, death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Now think about this. About half of the book of Mark is spent teaching about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. About half of the book of Mark is spent teaching about the uh, death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. About half of the book of Mark is spent in the uh, resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. You see, the question that would come to mind, if you began just with the death of Jesus Christ, if you began with the crucifixion, if you began with the death, if you began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you would ask, well, why is that special? And that's why Mark begins where he does. He wants us to see this death is important because it's the death of the God-man. It's the death of God incarnate. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That's why he introduces Jesus, the authenticity of Jesus and uh, why he introduces the authority of Jesus in our passage this morning. Now, another writer said this, Mark quickly establishes the fact that Jesus came in authority. In just two chapters, he records that Jesus has demonstrated power and authority in his teaching over demons, over disease, diseases, over uncleanness, as with leprosy, which we'll see uh, coming up, uh, his authority over sin, and authority as an overseer of the law. Later, he will even demonstrate Jesus' authority over the laws of nature. So it's important to understand that Mark here is presenting the fact that Jesus has the right to govern. Jesus has the right to require of you and of me that we do his will. Jesus has the right to do that. He has the authority to do that. And as someone said, Jesus demonstrated his authority and his power by performing miracles. But what we also will see and we'll see uh, today a little bit, but more importantly, we'll see next week and following weeks, is that Jesus had this authority, exercised this authority and power, while all the while showing compassion and God's love for the helpless. He showed real compassion and God's love for the helpless. Well, let's look at the passage here. We see we've... Uh, been looking at the introduction in verses 21 to 28, we see Christ's authority over demons. Verse 21 says this, uh, and let me just mention one thing before we, we get too far into this. Um, I, I like what C.S. Lewis said about demons and about the, the whole concept of demons. He said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. He's talking about demons or unclean spirits. Uh, this is in the screw tape letters. 
One is to disbelieve in their existence. I, I don't know where each of you is this morning on that. Whether you're saying to yourself, well, I don't know why we're looking at this demons. That was just a concept. Uh, uh, it was a superstition from the old days. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you may believe that, but what I am trying to uh, teach this morning, what I'm trying to show from the scripture is that demons are real. We can't see them because they're spirit being, beings, but they are real. And they are real in our culture, as advanced as it is, although sometimes when I look at our culture, I wonder how advanced we really are. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we've advanced to the point that we don't have the ethics to support the advances that we've made. But that's a whole other sermon. Um, so uh, demons are, are real. And they exist in modern cultures like ours, as well as in Stone Age type places uh, where their activity is a little more evident. Their activity is not so evident here to us. So to continue... There are two equal, this, these are C.S. Lewis's words, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. You see, in the underdeveloped part of the world, the undeveloped part of the world, their activity is blatant. There is no guessing about whether demons exist. I'd like to, to urge you to uh, read a book by Joanne Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R, and uh, I've recommended it before, so if you've been here at DRBC for a long time, uh, you've heard it before. Uh, it's Joanne Shetler is the author. She is a missionary and she, was a, she started out as a missionary many, many years ago now to a Stone Age tribe, the Belangio people, uh, in the uh, Philippines. And in her book, she catalogs the activity of demons, and those people were not in doubt that demons were real. And the activity that she saw may have left no doubt of the reality of demons. And so uh, their activity is blatant in those kinds of situations. Their activity is blatant. Now the thing is, in situations like ours, in the modern developed world, uh, they are subtle in the way they work. But that doesn't mean they aren't here, and it doesn't mean they aren't real, and it doesn't mean they aren't at work just because they're subtle in what they do. Now, I'm going to give you more evidence for that, so hang on there. If you're a, doubt, if you're a doubting Thomas here, that's okay, because we love doubting Thomas. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll give you more information in just a little bit. But let's, let's look at verses 21 and 22. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law. Now, to give you some background here, Capernaum was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you have a paper Bible, 
uh, you have no doubt have maps in the back. All you have to do is turn to the maps in the back and you'll see, just look for a, a map of Jesus' day, New Testament map, something like that. And you will see Capernaum if you look at the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. There will be Capernaum. Uh, if, you, if you use your smartphone for your Bible, I'm sure you have access to all kinds of maps there as well. Anyhow, Capernaum's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. What was important about Capernaum is that it was the center of Jesus' Galilean ministry. It was the home base, so to speak, from which Jesus and his disciples went out to minister uh, in the area of Galilee. It was the hometown of Peter and Andrew and James and John. It was an important town on the road to Damascus. It was on a trade route, which made it an important town. And it was also the, lo the location of a tax office. Now, why that makes an important town is not quite clear to me. Uh, why you would boast that we have a tax office here is beyond me, to be honest with you. But at any rate, it was, uh, it was uh, an important town because it was on a trade route. It was an important town because uh, a government office was located there. That is the city of Capernaum. Now, a second thing that we want to look at that's in the uh, kind of background to this passage is what is a synagogue? I think a lot of us assume many things about a synagogue, and when we read it in the New Testament, we read about synagogues, we don't really understand what was the synagogue like. Many of us may think of it as like a church service that we have here. Uh, synagogues were developed during the Babylonian exile. That is when the people of God no longer had the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon. They no longer had the... Uh, the possibility of going to the temple. They no longer could do temple worship. They no longer were even anywhere near it. So during the time of the Babylonian exile, synagogues were developed. And where there were 10 married Jewish men above the age of 12, one, a synagogue could be developed. A synagogue could be developed where there were 10 Jewish married men above the age of 12. Um, the only thing that they did at the synagogue was to pray and read and exposit God's word. The only activity that went on at the synagogue was prayer and the reading and exposition of God's word. It was a place of teaching and instruction. There was no, as one writer said, there was no music, no singing, and no sacrifice. No music, no singing, no sacrifice. A place of teaching and instruction. It was supervised by a board of elders. That's where the New Testament concept of elders came from, is from the synagogue set up. And uh, so it was supervised by a board of elders, uh, which was presided over by a ruler and We'll, we'll talk a little about the ruler's duty in just a moment. And visiting rabbis were customarily asked to teach. That's why we see Jesus going into the synagogue at Capernaum and he is invited to teach. Uh, it, was customary, it was a custom, rather, to ask visiting rabbis to teach. 
That's why we see uh, Paul all throughout the book of Acts. Where's the first place he goes to? Anybody? Synagogue. Synagogue was the first place he went to. Why? Because there he would find a readiness for them to hear his teaching. They say, oh, we have, we have visiting Rabbi Paul here this morning, and uh, we'd love to hear from him. Paul, do you have a message for us? Did Paul have a message for them? Right? He sure did. So that's what we see there. Now, the synagogue had services on the Sabbath as well as Mondays and Thursdays. Now, about the synagogue officials, I mentioned to you a moment ago that they were ruled by elders, uh, the, the leader of which was the ruler of the synagogue, uh, called the ruler, and his job was to uh, uh, do administration, to arrange for services, which uh, would be arranging for prayer, uh, reading and exposition of God's word, and that was his duty the ruler of the synagogue. The second officer of the synagogue or official of the synagogue was called a receiver. He was the one who would distribute, distribute alms. Uh, he would distribute the daily collection to the poor. That was his job. The third official is called the minister or the attendant. And their responsibility would be uh, multiple uh, things. They would store the sacred skull, scrolls. They would clean, make sure the synagogue was clean. They would see to the blowing of the silver trumpet, trumpets to announce the Sabbath. And for the elementary education of the children of the community. The one thing the synagogue did not have was a permanent teacher. Synagogue did not have a permanent teacher. When people met in the synagogue, the ruler would call on a competent person to give the address and the exposition. The invitation to visiting rabbis was called the freedom of the synagogue. It was a Jewish custom permitting recognized visiting teachers to preach by invitation of the leaders of the synagogue. So I hope that next time you read synagogue, you'll understand a little bit more about how it was made. By the way, at some point in the history of synagogues, uh, they, they made a rule, and it, it kind of <laughs> is interesting to me and almost a little, well, I don't know. Uh, they made a rule that synagogues had to be placed every so many feet because it was considered a violation of the law to, to walk uh, over a certain amount of steps. So there were a certain amount of steps that a Jewish person could walk on the Sabbath and not violate the law. And if they went over that number of steps, they, uh, they violated the law and were in, were in violation of the law. And so synagogues were placed so that Jews could go to the synagogue on the Sabbath without walking over that many steps. Now, on one hand, you say, wow, how clever of them to do that. On the other hand, on the other hand, you say, wow, is that what the law had become to them, the number of steps you walked on the Sabbath? God's great law was reduced to how many steps you could walk. 
So that's what I say. I, I'm, I'm ambivalent about that. But anyhow, that's something that came in later. Well, Jesus goes to Capernaum on the Sabbath. He went into the synagogue, was invited to teach, begins to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Jesus teaches and he amazes the people there by his message and he amazes the people there by his manner of teaching. We can guess at the content of what he taught because we have a sense of it in chapter 1 and verse 14. If you just turn back a page uh, to chapter 1 and verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That is a good example of Jesus' teaching, and no doubt he taught that at the synagogue at Capernaum. And we see him in verse 21. We see his teaching in verse 39. We see him teaching. Now, if this is a sample of his teaching, repent and believe, the question is we should ask, what does it mean to repent? And we have looked a little about at this over the last couple of weeks, but what is it? what do we repent of and what do we believe? What do we repent of and what do we believe? Well, unfortunately, uh, some of the translations uh, uh, play a little loose with the text. Uh, for instance, the NIV translation here is excellent. Repent and believe, because that's what the Greek text says. Now, if you use uh, certain translations, such as the New Living Translation, which I happen to personally love, and I love to use it as a reading Bible. Do you know, uh, there are some Bibles that just read better, read, read more easily. And the NLT is one of those. And so I love it for a reading Bible, but I like to always caution folks, don't use it for a study Bible. If you want a study Bible, use something like the NIV or use the New American Standard. And by the way, there's an updated New American Standard. Exciting. Do you like it, Steve? Uh, Steve doesn't like it, so forget that. But Steve likes the NASB. He likes the New American Standard. Uh, the, the, uh, those are good study Bibles. Those are, those are good to use for your study. But things like the NLT are great for using for your reading, for purposes of just reading through the Scripture. The reason I mention that is because uh, it kind of drives me up a wall every time because I use NLT in my morning reading, my morning devotions. Kind of drives me up a wall because every time you see the word repent in the NLT, they add of your sins. Now, this is interesting because it's not in the text. It's not in the Greek text of your sins. All it says in the Greek text is metanoia, repent. <clears throat> repent, that's all it says. So, how are we to understand Jesus' message, his teaching? Well, I like the way <clears throat> Dr. Grasmick of the Bible Knowledge Commentary put it. He said to repent is to turning, excuse me, to repent is to turn away from an existing object of trust. 
to turn away from an existing object of trust, such as yourself. You see, you're trusting someone for life. You're trusting someone for eternity. You're trusting someone for salvation or something. What is it you're trusting? Is it yourself? Some people's object of trust is themselves. Some people's object of trust is religion or religious ritual or good works. And that's the object that they are trusting in. I must be let into heaven because I've done more good works than bad works. I don't know anybody like that, including myself. By the way, take a little lie. We used to call them little white lies. Take a little lie. How many good things does it take to overcome a lie? Do you know? How many good works does it take to overcome a big lie? And then go up from there to the biggie sins. Biggie in quotes. So how many good works does it take for God to let you in heaven? Well, the scripture is clear on that. All of my righteousness is filthy rags to God. That's what he thinks of my good works. That's what he thinks of your good works. They're filthy rags before him. To repent is to turn away from an existing object of trust such as yourself or religion or religious ritual or good works. The other side of that is to believe. What does it mean to believe? And Grasmick describes it this way. To believe is to commit oneself wholeheartedly to an object of faith. In other words, you stop trusting yourself, you stop trusting in good works, you stop trusting in tradition, you stop trusting in religious ritual, you stop trusting in a church, and you put, transfer your trust to Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who died for you on Calvary's cross. That's what it means. So we repent to turn away from an existing object of trust, turning to a the right object of trust, and to believe in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Well, that's just a, a sample of what his message might have been. We read that the people are, are, are amazed at his teaching. The word amazed there means to be astounded, to be overwhelmed. Uh, I, I like the way many writers have put it, to be struck out of your senses. Isn't that an interesting phrase? To be struck out of your senses. They were stunned at his teaching. Another author said to strike with intense amazement. To strike with intense amazement. They were, they were struck. They were stunned. They were, they were, they were stunned uh, uh, and struck out, uh, struck out of their senses by joy. By joy. They were struck out of their senses by wonder. They were struck out of their senses by fear. Why was that? Why was Jesus' teaching so different? Because Jesus' teaching was authoritative. You see, in that day, other teachers, other rabbis, schooled in the Torah and schooled in its oral interpretation, simply quoted what their predecessors said. If they were teaching, they would say, they would make no conclusions, they would uh, uh, have no authority of their own, 
they would say something like this. There is a teaching that Rabbi so-and-so taught. But then there is a teaching that Rabbi so-and-so taught that's different. And there was a teaching that Rabbi so... In other words, they would quote rabbis. They would quote other people, but they never came to a conclusion. They never had authority of their own in their teaching. Jesus comes along and he teaches with authority. He's not referring to any other rabbis. He's saying, thus saith me, the Lord. Now, the exciting part of this is that when we teach the Word of God, not our opinions, not our traditions, when we teach the Word of God, we can teach with authority. Now, obviously not the authority of the Son of God, but we can teach with authority because it's the Word of God that we're teaching, not our opinions, but it's the Word of God. Uh, there is such a dearth of that kind of teaching today. There is such a dearth of, of teaching in churches with, with authority. There are preachers today who present the Word of God as if it's an option. Well, if you want to choose to live the way the Bible says, this is what you would do, but you know, you might want to choose not to. That's not authority. Or this is what the Word of God says, but, and then you find a million ways to deny what the Word of God plainly says. No, the exciting thing is that you and I can teach with authority. If we are teaching the Word of God. Jesus taught with authority. It amazed them, not as the teachers of the law. As it says in verse 27, he even gave orders to evil spirits and they obeyed him. He they, they said in verse 20, 20 uh, excuse me, 7, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? That's because of how Jesus taught. And there we see our word authority. Jesus teaches and he amazes them with the message and the manner of his teaching. The, the scribes never gave decisions on their own they would simply say there is a teaching that and then they quote some rabbi, rabbi so-and-so. Well, at this point, Jesus is interrupted by a demon. Verse 23, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, Jesus didn't say, you know what? You're just faking. There's no such thing as demons. It's just an old tradition. It's just superstition. He didn't say any of those things, did he? No, he addressed the demon 
and said basically in verse 25 it says be quiet more accurately it's shut up shut up he addresses the demon now there are those who believe that uh, several things first of all they believe that this may have been an attempt by the demon to gain control over Jesus at the very least many times Remember Jesus in his temptation a couple of weeks ago as we studied that. Uh, uh, we, we saw that uh, in the scripture it says that Satan left Jesus for a time waiting for another opportunity to go after him and to divert him from his task that God the Father had given him to go to the cross. To go to the cross and bear your sins and my sins. Um, this may have been an attempt to deter Jesus. There was thought, there was a belief at that time that if you knew a person's true identity and could utter their name, you could gain control over them. Some believe that that's what this demon in this man was trying to do. The other thing is that verse 24, where he says, what do you want with us, Jesus of, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The, the Greek verb there for had you, have you come to destroy us can be translated either as a question or a statement. It can be a question as in the NIV, have you come to destroy us? Or it could be a statement, you have come to destroy us because the demon recognized, the demon recognized the role of judgment in what Jesus came to do. So as we just said in verse 25, be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Be quiet. Various translators have translated, be muzzled, be silenced. Shut up. The same words that Jesus used to still the storms. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, in the few moments that I have remaining, I want to talk a little bit about demons, uh, uh, kind of where they come from what they do. Uh, number one, Scripture affirms the reality of demons. Scripture affirms the reality of demons. We have the testimony of Jesus. Uh, he cast them out. He gave his disciples authority to cast them out. He didn't correct anyone for their acceptance of the reality of demons. He didn't say to them, oh, come on now, you, know, you don't believe that old superstition, do you? He didn't correct anyone for their acceptance of the reality of demons. Now, if that's the case, then we're stuck with a couple of choices that are pretty bad. Number one, we're stuck with the choice that Jesus was lying. Or number two, that he was accommodating superstition. So either demons are real or they aren't. If they aren't real, Jesus was lying. That's pretty bad. 
if they aren't real, Jesus was accommodating the superstition of the people around him, which makes him again guilty of what? Lying. That's heresy, folks. That's heresy. The New Testament mentions demons over 100 times. The Old Testament makes reference to demons. What is the origin of demons? Well, demons are fallen angels. Demons are fallen angels. They are those who fell with Satan and joined his revolt. When Satan revolted against God, a third of the angels joined him in their revolt against God, and they became what the Bible describes as unclean spirits or demons. Satan is the prince of demons. Demons are called unclean spirits, which relate their work to the spirit world of angels, not humans. That is, demons aren't some kind of aberrant human form. Demons are spirit beings. Demons are spirit beings. Demons of being spirit beings, that means they don't have body, they don't have a corporeal structure. They are spirits, so we can't see them. We can see the evidence of their work. Uh, they are not omnipresent. They are not just kind of little gods that can be anywhere uh, all the time, as God is at everywhere at all times. They can only be at one place at one time but they have an effective network of communication so they can communicate across the world in nanoseconds. They are not omnipresent. They are not omniscient. That is, they are not all-knowing as God is all-knowing. Their high intelligence, one writer said, coupled with their long existence and intimate experience with human beings in every possible circumstance makes them capable of predicting our responsibility responses in a giving situation. In other words, demons have had all of human existence to study humans and how they react in certain situations. On top of that, they have had all of your lifetime and all of my lifetime to study us individually and see how we will react in certain situations. That's what makes them so effective. They're not omniscient, they're not omnipresent, but they're smart. And they come to understand us. Elsa Rod, a missionary who wrote a book about uh, demons, said this, These fallen angels possess great intelligence and power and occupy various ranks. They serve their evil master by upholding his authority in the world and promoting his wicked designs. Demons are spirit beings. They are well organized, the scripture tells us, especially Ephesians 6. They are well organized. They further Satan's purposes. They are personal beings, not just forces or concepts. Their work in the world is to oppose God's purposes in the world. They may be used by God to further his purposes. A good example of that is 
when God used an evil spirit to trouble Saul in the Old Testament. And we have other examples of that as well. Demons promote idolatry. They promote false religion. They can inflict physical illness and mental disorders. Though not all physical illness and not all mental <coughs> disorders excuse me, result from deep demon activity for even the Bible distinguishes between them. They promote a system of doctrine. They promote a system of doctrine, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, that uses deception, that teaches that you can be saved by your good works. They promote good or they promote evil to accomplish their purposes. Demons, Satan, will promote good things if it accomplishes their purpose of getting us away from following God and His will for us. They deny the deity of Christ and they deny the humanity of Christ. They promote destruction. They seek to destroy the bodies of men and women. They seek to destroy the minds of men and women. They promote moral impurity. Revelation 9.11 tells us they will physically torment people during the tribulation. And Daniel tells us in Daniel 10, 13, and 20, in Revelation 16, 13 to 14, 6 and to 14, and Revelation 16, they promote delusion among the nations. You ever wonder why this world seems nuts? That's why. They promote delusion among the nations. Well, how do we respond? What are some defenses? Well, we've all, we talked a couple of weeks ago about our defenses against Satan. I won't repeat that today, but we need to yield to the Lord. We need to stand decisively against Satan and his uh, evil spirits. We need to use the armor of God, in particular the word of God, which is the only offensive weapon. We need to pray. We need to be aware of the enemy and their tactics and when it comes to sexual temptation, we need to flee sexual situations. We need to make no provision for the sin nature. And we need to keep good company. Well, I don't want to leave us thinking that somehow we need to quake in our boots over evil spirits. I want us to be encouraged As one writer said, the New Testament epistles stress the need for believers to draw, draw on their close relationship with Christ and the power of His Spirit as the primary means for resisting the influence of evil spirits. John told us that greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. If we walk with God, if we grow in the Word of God, Grow in obedience to God. Grow in the will of God. There's no need to fear evil spirits. If we are walking apart from God, if we are not allowing the word of God to do its work in our lives, if we are not drawing closer to God, then that might be something to be concerned about. Not just might. It would be. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you.
Help us to see the truth of your word. Help us to realize the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in you and grow in your word. I pray in Jesus' name. 